0: Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Today we are talking to David Miyashiro, superintendent of the Cajon Valley Union School District. Located just east of San Diego, California, the district has 27 schools and 17,000 students, 68% of whom are eligible for free and reduced price meals. Cajon Valley started school all remote in August, but then on September 9th, it opened its doors for in-person learning with a hybrid model in place. At the time, 97% of California schools were still all remote. Miyashiro was hellbent on getting kids back into the classroom because he could see inequities growing. Wealthier families were forming learning pods and signing up for expensive camps, while families with fewer resources had no options.
1: At my local ice rink where I, you know, practice ice hockey, I got an email from the league director and said, hey, if you have a child in the San Diego Unified School District, we are going to be following their distance learning program, and our ice coaches will give your kids ice time and then complete their distance learning, all this for the price of $1,000 per month. And I thought, wow, that's a cool opportunity. I would love to do that as a kid, but then what about the families who don't even know that's an option? And if they did, you know, don't have the discretionary $1,000 a month to do that.
0: Miyashiro likes to innovate. He went one-to-one with laptops in 2014, he's built his own world of work curriculum, and he studies business way more than education. He also invests a lot in building trust, with families, teachers, and staff, and also with the unions in his district. And he's not afraid to try novel solutions. He used stimulus money to hire college athletes, essentially as TAs, to allow more kids to be learning at school. The California weather, of course, helps. He's also got a plan for how to discipline students who flaunt mask rules, one he describes as rigorous, but not ruthless. David Miyashiro, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Jenny, it's good to talk to you again.
0: Let's start with the obvious question. How is it being back in the classroom with your students?
1: Oh, it's joyful. The parents, especially picking them up for the first time, seeing that they're okay and happy. Parents have told me, I saw my kid for the first time in seven months. And I think because we've been living this day to day, we didn't realize just how much our kids have missed, not just their schools, but their teachers, the people that love them, and especially their friends. And the teachers as well, I, I think that they, they didn't realize how much they missed their colleagues being in their workspace and having children um, smile and, and even want to hug them. And all the little things that we take for granted, not to say it's, it's easy or that there aren't glitches or things that we need to work out, but for the most part, people are very happy.
0: Talk us through the safety aspects of it. Have you had any cases yet? And what kind of precautions are you taking?
1: Yes, so we've had to quarantine two cohorts at one of our schools. In both cases, the children were infected at a family gathering or something else. It wasn't something that happened at school. And so the quarantine and the contact tracing seems to work. Uh, We did contact trace once in the spring and once in the summer as precaution, but we've had no community spread or student-to-student spread. We've also had several of our employees Uh, report that they contracted COVID at another event, and then come back and we've been able to limit no employee to employee spread either. So the rules and the protocols and the safety, safety guidelines are working.
0: You came back starting with a hybrid plan. At a minimum, kids would be in school two days a week and out of school three days a week. How is that working?
1: We limited it to 50% in the beginning based on our experience during the summer.
0: For context, Cajon Valley opened its schools for an in-person summer learning program, which served around 6,000 kids.
1: So originally we had planned to provide the offerings that we gave parents in June when we surveyed them for the first time, meaning that they would have the option of full-time school. And that's what I had hoped. That's what we all uh, want to get back to. But our summer experience, our teachers started to see that uh, middle school kids in particular started to get lax with the safety guidelines as they got more comfortable being at school. So they put their hands around each other and hug each other and you know be a little bit more comfortable with their masks. And it, it made the teachers very uncomfortable. Um, and we also didn't at that time have procedures for discipline in terms of well, what if the students don't follow the guidelines? because prior to COVID, there were no rules for face coverings or standing six feet apart. So the 50% that we started with was really to ensure that we can have all the people on campus following the rules. Tell me a little bit about those procedures. We have put our, our guidelines into board policy. If the students actively defy some of the rules that we put in place for safety during COVID, then they will be quarantined. We make the assumption that, okay, if you're behaving this way here, you're behaving this way everywhere, you are infected, so we're gonna quarantine you for two days, two days, then 14 days which is the maximum quarantine for someone who actually tests positive. Uh, and same for staff. One of the things that we've seen is staff are very good at protocols when they're with our students and with our parents, but then when they're with their colleagues in you know, a workspace or after school, it's a different dynamic than what they're used to. You know, they, They're used to being more comfortable. So we need to really be vigilant 24 seven.
0: So basically, instead of getting detention, for quote unquote misbehaving, you get quarantined now. That feels so 2020.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> we actually, we, we had our attorney help us because this is something that we've never done before. We wanted to do, do right by the children, but also do right by our employees. And so the first draft of the language said suspension. I said, we're not gonna suspend a kid for for this, but but quarantine is a different thing because we're not taking them away from school they're still gonna have distance learning. That's one of the benefits of the hybrid is because teachers are teaching both virtually and in person. So even the two cohorts that we had to quarantine, one will be coming back on, I think Monday, they didn't stop learning. The teacher still has the same class and then engaging with the kids um, through distance learning.
0: So the kids who are at home are still learning with the kids who are in class. So it's one classroom experience, some accessing it remotely, some accessing it in person.
1: That's right. Is
0: that the case for the 30% who are all remote?
1: The 30% who are all remote have their own distance learning teacher. And in the middle school, we have a distance learning tribe of teachers that teach small groups so that they, they can have actually periods and different coursework but it's fully distance learning.
0: You said to me in a story that I published in the New York Times, distance learning is not working for people. I'm sure you've put some time into thinking how to improve it. How is it working now?
1: When we had the distance learn uh, right at the shutdown, our kids and teachers, they had the proficiency because they've been doing it for eight years in their classrooms. And so the transition to remote wasn't hard for them in terms of the technical skills and access, logging in and all the stuff that you see other people new to this having a hard time with. The concern was uh, in the family dynamic, do the parents have the time and the space to make sure the kid has a routine and a structure to get up in the morning and to be online? And does a parent have the capacity to assist and to monitor progress in the home? That's where the distance learning wasn't working. It wasn't the technical skill or the delivery of the teacher because now the 30% of students who are electing or their parents are electing to keep them in distance learning, they're making that choice. And for those 30%, it's working so much better because these are the folks that actually can provide the time and space and want this form of delivery.
0: There's been so much talk of COVID slide. Have you been assessing your kids? Do you know how far behind they are from where they should be as a result of having been gone from school for so long?
1: Yeah. Karen Minshew, our assistant superintendent, put it best to our parents who asked that question. And she said, your kids didn't fall behind because if you look at it on uh, – you know, regional or state or national level, all kids have been separated from their schools. Your kids actually have been moving forward and past everybody else because they didn't have to stop learning with the transition to digital and synchronous type solutions. What we are doing now is using diagnostics with iReady and some of the other digital tools to make sure that we know where the kids are now and can track where they're going in the immediate and long-term future.
0: It was very important to you to get... Kids back into school uh, starting in March. You focused on providing free emergency childcare to essential workers. You then opened a summer program for a third of your 17,000 students, and you committed to getting kids back. And you've been working towards that goal. Why was that so important to you?
1: The weekly meetings that we started the week following the shutdown with our PTA presidents and our employee stakeholder groups really helped us to make decisions. Our parents started to tell us you know we're, we're having to go back to work now my husband is uh, law enforcement and i'm a nurse and we both have to work we don't have an option that's why the child care was something that we invested in right away because we knew that our parents uh, were struggling and our kids also uh, when pa- both parents have to work the distance learning wasn't working for those kids so how are we going to help them so we turned our child care into distance learning support recreation and enrichment to serve both the children and the parents and what we saw in the parent community is a, a huge sigh of relief and comfort as they went back to serve in those essential jobs and then the kids that we actually served in childcare, i heard statements like this is my new best friend because we had kids from all over the district uh, coming to one central location in our first iteration of childcare that had never seen each other before but after weeks of not seeing any children at all they were just so happy and lit up And that's when we started to hear from the parents, like, thank you, my children are happy, I'm picking them up and they don't have homework because they're done with it from their their childcare provider and we can just have family time. And those early lessons taught us what we needed to be doing for everybody.
0: Talk me through what you heard there and how you responded to that, what you heard in those meetings.
1: Yeah, the first thing was what we saw. So on March 13th, all San Diego schools shut down and we wanted to provide uh, our meal service. So about, we serve about 30,000 meals a day uh, for breakfast and lunch for free and reduced um, students. And we were ready to do that that following Monday, but we served only maybe a third of that. And the question was, why aren't kids coming to get their meals? And it's because our communication system, we just assumed that when we send an email or an all call home, hey, families, this is available, that they're receiving the message. What we found out really quickly was not all families are receiving those messages. A lot of families opted out of communications a long time ago because they didn't want to hear from us over and over again, so we couldn't get to them. And so being able to feed our children was our first immediate need, and then also finding out that some of our kids weren't actually online that we thought had Wi-Fi access because they were doing their homework and coursework uh, prior to COVID, but all of a sudden they're they're not ex- accessing anything because they didn't have it actually in their home. And so all these things became a very, very big sense of urgency for us to get our kids connected, to get them fed, and then we started to learn that a lot of our parents who need to both work to make ends meet were leaving their children unsupervised at home because they had to work in order to stay in their homes and provide food on the table. And that was another concern, our kids are not being supervised, and they don't have support to get on the distance learning programs.
0: One of the things you said to me that really stuck with me was that this crisis is making equity so much worse. What did you mean by that?
1: What we started to see is several of our our parents would pull their kids out, and some of the private schools and uh, charter schools had options for parents. And so a lot of our parents started to find ways to get their kids support and supervision, Uh, Learning pods became a new term that was something I hadn't heard of before where parents would band together and hire a certificated teacher to come in and watch their kids so the parents can go back to work and starting to see these things happen in the community uh, for kids whose parents had the means and the wherewithal and then our kids whose parents are just going to work and leaving the kids at home that equity gap went from this big to massive and then I at my local ice rink where I you know practice ice hockey i got an email from the lead director and said hey if you have a child in the san diego unified school district we are going to be following their distance learning program and our ice coaches will give your kids ice time and then complete their distance learning they'll take a walk around the shopping mall have a meal go back for ice time complete their distance learning and then off all this for the price of a thousand dollars per month and i thought wow that's a cool opportunity i would love to do that as a kid but then What about the families who don't even know that's an option? And if they did, you know, don't have the discretionary thousand dollars a month to do that.
0: You've got kids now, if they've opted for the hybrid plan, they're home three days a week, and you're very aware that that is obviously not a great solution for working parents. What did you do to try to fix that using that hockey rink model?
1: You know, every every business is trying to figure out a way to uh, stay in business. I thought that was actually a, a really creative idea. And then what if we could do that for all our parents? And so Sports for Learning is a a group that we've been working with for several years now to provide uh, lunchtime recreation and sports and organized activities during the school day. And we asked them, hey, we would love to hire you to provide recreation, sports, and distance learning support full-time at all of our schools. They said, okay. (laughs) So $1.2 million later and about 85 to 90 right now, Student athletes from San Diego State University and UC San Diego trained to help students. And these young people, uh, our children gravitate to because they're full of energy, they're exciting, and um, that's been such an augmentation and parents love it. There shouldn't be an extra expense for any parent to provide these types of activities for their kids.
0: And just because I know our listeners will want to know this question, where did you come up with $1.2 million?
1: In March, the federal government provided a stimulus bill for all 50 states And CARES money was given to us to be spent right now. Most districts, I would say 95, 99% of districts spent nothing or spent money on technology and computers because they didn't have it. Our children already had uh, a computer for their learning that we provided seven, eight years ago now. So we didn't have to spend money on technology. And so all of our money went on direct services to students in the free childcare and the summer learning enrichment. And then now the extra enrichment and sports and recreation.
0: And I love this, you've trained the college athletes to implement your own curriculum as well and to do some computer science training as well. So it's worked both ways. They've been trained to do some skills that they didn't have. And then they're offering the sports and learning program which is sports and learning tied around social and emotional learning. Why is it so important to you that parents have choice? You've mentioned this a lot, this idea that parents should be given choice.
1: If you ask, I think 99% of superintendents, uh, the question, are you in favor of charter schools or not? I think 99% would say not. I would be willing to say, I think charter schools are an important part of our ecosystem because it provides choice and promotes competition so that districts can't just sit on their laurels. We have to stay relevant and compete for clients who are our parents. The children are our treasures, but the parents are our clients. And so I think charter schools and private schools Uh, give parents an opportunity to choose a specific uh, curricular focus, maybe a different type of learning modality. And in our case, we've created magnet schools in our district, uh, performing arts magnet, uh, dual language magnet, computer science magnets, uh, outdoor education magnets, and that provides parents choice for the, you know, the unique needs of the children, but also um, in their public school system right here. I don't have to leave. Uh, to go to a charter or private, my own local school district provides choice within the school system and I can choose any school I want.
0: You have gotten some pushback and some criticism that you've built a whole YouTube channel and you travel a lot to talk about the work that you're doing. Tell me why innovation is important for schools.
1: Necessity is the mother of invention and our Chamber of Commerce, our city manager, Uh, San Diego, we have a large Department of Defense presence with the Marines, Navy, and actually Air Force, too. Uh, All of these leaders from these areas have told us that the school system is irrelevant, that the college-for-all mentality that we built into kids is creating a false narrative of what success is and actually ability to attain gainful employment. The other thing that the city manager and the admirals from the different departments said is that you guys are stigmatizing K-12, the most important jobs and work, in the country. We don't want your leftovers to come to serve in the Navy. We want kids to see that as a first choice. City manager said, you know, we're we're building our infrastructure and we're developing. We need people to have that skill set to design and build infrastructure and new buildings, but you guys have stigmatized that. It's not even an option. Or kids see that as a stigmatized part of the, the school um, curriculum for kids that aren't smart. And that's not accurate too. So responding to the needs of the workforce, um, to the 1.7 trillion in student loan debt because kids that actually go to college, either drop out or finish and can't find a job in their area of study. Those are the things we're trying to solve for. And that's why we're invited to Learn It and to ISTE and to the US Department of Education to help solve these national and global problems of the economy. The Department of Education and Department of Labor shouldn't be separate. Those should be working hand in hand to make sure that every person has the opportunity for financial freedom.
0: Um, you've talked about how these employers feel the K-12 system is stigmatizing certain jobs. What is the World of Work curriculum and how did it come about?
1: Well, the World of Work actually started at Qualcomm. Our chief innovation officer that works for Cologne Valley used to work in government affairs and staffing at Qualcomm and built uh, on the top floor of one of the skyscrapers in one of the biggest companies in the world, Qualcomm, The world of work and kids would come in middle school for this one day experience where they would get to explore their strengths, interests and values. They would get to program with an Arduino and learn some basic code and learn about the different careers at Qualcomm. And we would see our kids for the first time in their education think that the stuff they're doing in school actually is purposeful towards something they can do in their adult life. And our board said, how can we take this one day experience and turn it into a comprehensive K 12 experience that all of our kids could experience. And so at the same time, our, our Chamber of Commerce, our, our city manager, our local developers were saying your system is obsolete. You need to prepare kids for actual work. Uh, Our workforce board, the San Diego workforce partnership said that, you know, we lead the community and kids that are at age 16 to 24 that are not working and not in school. And those opportunity youth are our fault. So solution, world of work, problem, workforce. And we combined that invested two and a half million dollars into the development of this curriculum, which is now in its fourth year with really good results as measured by Gallup student engagement poll and an independent study by the University of San Diego.
0: What does the world of work curriculum look like for a fifth grader?
1: So a fifth grader will experience a career exploration and simulation in their classroom. In each area of the RIASEC, which is a it's a typology of of interest. RIASEC is an acronym. So realistic, hands on doing, investigative using math and science to solve problems, social uh, Nurses, doctors, helpers, people in the community that engage with people, uh, conventional people that organize facts, data and figures like your computer scientists. And they have to do each one every year so that they don't foreclose or not have an exposure to a type of career. And at the end of the year, they reflect and think on which of those was most like me, which of those was least like me, and then we do it again in sixth grade. In conversations with parents and their teachers, students really start to think about, you know what, I have some unique strengths and interests. I wanna spend more time here than here. So by the time high school comes around and they have to choose a CTE program or a career pathway or start to be more intentional about post-secondary, they have such a good self-awareness that they can actually make those informed decisions and have goals towards future beyond high school, college, and their first job.
0: So if we actually asked your kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? They might actually come up with some interesting answers.
1: That's actually the focus of the study from the University of San Diego, and it's called possible future selves. And if children don't have that vividness of a possible future self, then they'll never get there. Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And the, the whole focus of World of Work is self-awareness, awareness of what the opportunities are, and then giving kids the steps to get there.
0: And so parents also have an opportunity to come in and talk about their own jobs. If I, Could I come in and talk about journalism?
1: Yeah, that's level three. It's called Meet a Pro. So level one is Explore, two is Simulate, three is Meet a Pro, and then four is Practice. And that's the internships are actually hands-on doing with industry.
0: When we went into lockdown, you held weekly meetings with PTA members, with your staff, with classified staff as well. Why did you do that?
1: So we were already having the the monthly forums of check-ins, but they were more in the, the format of updates. So I would share updates and then allow them to ask questions about whatever they wanted to talk about. When the pandemic hit, we realized that we needed to compress that to have more regular meetings and have it more of a focus of checking in on them, on their well-being. You know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What can we as a district be doing? So I think that the practices of communication and two-way question and answer were already there. We just accelerated that and made it more of a, a frequent thing for us.
0: And did you feel like it worked? Did people communicate? Did they emote? Did they share things?
1: Yeah, and as, as the pandemic wore on and it became harder and harder, both uh, emotionally and uh, economically for a lot of people, we started to really hear where the pain points were, and that's really what helped us drive our decision making and opening up the pop-up childcare and, and starting to serve families in the ways that they were asking to be served.
0: I'd love to ask you to reflect on your leadership in particular as it relates to the union. You were very bullish on getting back in the classroom. The union said you pushed really, really hard to do that. There was some real friction, but you all worked through it. How did you do that?
1: Yeah, trust goes both ways. So, so in order for them to trust me, I also have to trust them and, and really lean into the things that they say and present to us and accept things as fact. If we want the union to receive us the same way. And that's how we've done all of our work prior to the pandemic. So when it came to decision-making here, we did the same thing. When the board met to talk about reopening, we had the union members in the meeting. I don't think that's typical, but I think that should be the norm. If we want to be, you know, have trust, then there can, can be no translation of information. Everybody has to have the information from the source.
0: What would you say your biggest insights on leadership from COVID-19 have been?
1: I think the biggest insights from leadership, both prior to and during the pandemic, is that our our employees are our first customers. And if we love on them and invest in them, then they will take care of our real customers who are our parents and community. And so we've invested in culture and team building. We use a lot of video and, and marketing and branding to share their great work with the community to validate the work of our employees. So creating opportunities like a community-wide flash mob where people from different schools can come be a part of uh, something bigger than themselves. The best companies in the world invest in their employees. They take care of them, they give employee benefits. They treat them as family.
0: Tell us the story of the flash mob.
1: Justin Timberlake had this song, uh, Can't Stop the Feeling, which was awesome. The district office staff, our transportation department, child nutrition, uh, IT, they worked through the summer getting ready for the school year. And so we thought, let's just take a week off and, and you know, have some fun and make a music video. And it ended up being a hit. And then teachers started to ask, oh, how come you didn't involve us? And I said, well, you, you guys are, you guys <laughs> are awesome left out. <laughs> and then we thought, how can we involve more people? So we turned the dance video into a flash mob. And then what we found is, is during the practices, that people from different schools and departments, everyone's the same at the flash mob. I'm just this beginning dancer learning how to do this thing, which I'm uncomfortable with. But by the end of it, you know, I'm a pro and the videographers make everyone look like an amazing dancer. And it just continued to grow and grow. And now our police department and our city manager team, they they all participate. And now our students are getting involved.
0: COVID-19 has been this forced experiment with a lot of really unfortunate consequences. Do you see any silver linings with schools?
1: I've heard that uh, COVID isn't a change agent. It's an accelerant. I think that was Scott Galloway from New York university. And I think he's right. So in our district for the last eight years, we've transitioned to a, a digital ecosystem where all of our teachers and kids have these digital proficiencies and we're seeing them that that's what's needed in the world of work. So districts that didn't have that before all now have devices. And so districts are struggling with IT and cybersecurity and all the things that we figured out. But I think what's gonna come out of this is they're gonna realize, okay, now we have these tools, let's use them smartly and let's learn from those who have been doing this. And I think that it's an opportunity for all of us to make our systems relevant again, to align with business and industry and for business and industry to tell us what, we, what, what they need from us in terms of uh, the future workforce. And that's happening. That's exciting. The current U.S. Department of Education leaders uh, have been pushing on that uh, for years, and I think that's happening.
0: There's a lot of bad things happening in the world, right? We've got climate change. We have a global pandemic at this particular moment. We have a serious reckoning with racism in the United States and globally. How do we teach kids to recognize the magnitude of the problem they have while not completely overwhelming? With the scope of the challenge they face.
1: Our vision is happy kids engaged in healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. And early on, that received so much criticism. That's fluffy. Happy kids. Happy kids is not a vision, but when you break it down to the scientific terms, happiness meaning uh self-esteem, self-love, I know my strengths, interests, and values, and I feel like I can contribute to the world. Hel- healthy relationships. Uh, I know my peers deeply and well who come from different ethnicities and races and socioeconomic backgrounds. I know their stories, and they know mine. And we start developing relationships that are cultivated starting in kindergarten. And through our TED, uh, TED-Ed TED program where kids learn to give TED Talks starting in kindergarten, they first talk about their, their story. Who am I? Who are my parents? What do we do on our weekends? And when kids start to learn each other and build relationships deeply and well with multicultures, multi-ethnicities, then bias and, and stereotypes don't happen later in life. We start early building those relationships and networks and then gainful employment. I know who I am, I've built a network of friends and adults who are helping me on my path and I know all the different opportunities available to me so I can make good decisions about my future and really have intention going into post-secondary. That's a path to healthy relationships, and gainful employment. And looking at studies on happiness, the number one and two things are relationships and career satisfaction. And if we can give every child that leaving our system, financial freedom and and happiness, what could be a a more altruistic vision and goal?
0: All right, last questions. What is your favorite book about education?
1: I haven't read any.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what's your favorite business book?
1: Uh, Good to great and built to last. I'm a big Jim Collins fan because he studies universities in K-12, but he also studies minor league baseball teams and mom and pop shops and then Amazon, Facebook, Apple. Uh,
0: Okay, your favorite book not about education. That might be
1: easier. That's not Jim Collins. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl.
0: I love it. Okay, and uh, what
1: are you binge watching? Uh, Breaking Bad over and over again. It's... it's (laughs)
0: And what's the lesson from that?
1: What I don't want to become my feared for uh, future self.
0: <laughs> I got it. I, was, I thought you were going to say something about necessity as the mother of invention. But anyways, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, David, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to catch up again and to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Jenny, so much. It's great to talk to you again.
0: I was struck by a lot of things in this conversation by David's commitment to innovation, his unapologetic embrace of business for guidance, and his commitment to listening to families. That commitment was not just about getting schools open, a major feat, but to make sure all families, not just wealthy ones, have choices. It does not surprise me that David has been criticized for his motto or vision, happy kids engaged in healthy relationships on a path of gainful employment. It sounds both too practical and too fluffy, but it also responds to and updates what kids need critical skills of self-awareness, practice building relationships, strong academic and social skills, as well as a blueprint for how to think about and find a career, which he did with his world of work curriculum. I'd encourage you to watch the virtual flash mob linked in the show notes. At a moment where some of us may be lacking optimism or just energy, it will give you hope and make you smile. I hope you enjoyed the episode and see you next week. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.